The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Jotner. My guest today is Wesley Morris, a critic at large for The New York Times. Morris won the Pulitzer Prize for criticism when he was at the Boston Globe. He later went on to join Grantland before ending up where he is today at the Times. Along with his frequent pieces on popular culture, he co-hosts with Jenna Wortham, the podcast Still Processing. Wesley Morris joins me now in studio from New York City. Wesley, hi. Hi. How are you? Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Colt, uh, your 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 title, Critic at Large, is an mm-hmm. interesting title. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask what that title means to you. <laughs> and oh, I've got you laughing already. Uh, no, I mean, what is? how do you think of a role of a critic at large? What what, what exactly does that mean in 2018? I don't know. I mean, it, I, I mean, I think about that a lot. I also think about why it's so fascinating to, to so many different people. And I mean, really different people. Like my grandmother wants to know what a critic at large does. And I never really have a very good answer. I mean, basically my my immediate response, you've asked a very specific, you've asked maybe the most compelling version of that question, which is like how it applies to now. But I mean, most of the time I just answer and say, um, it lets me write about whatever I want. But if I'm thinking about it in the way that you asked me, I think, I think it kind of comes with this sort of moral responsibility but i mean i don't know i feel like i've always approached criticism with a degree of of morality right like not as a moralizer but as just somebody who wants to make sure that the culture we're getting is is at least morally aware of how it's functioning. So right? th- this would mean sort of, correct me if this is wrong, that, you know, you have your daily critics who do movies or do mm-hmm. music or do mm-hmm. television and that your your role a little bit is to step back and say, like, what are the larger issues going on here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's funny because I actually think that that great criticism is capable of doing that anyway. But my the difference between me and, say, you know, the opera critic is that, I'm I'm sort of charged with thinking about the world beyond opera. Like I could go to a sh- I could go see Defleter Mouse, for instance. I've never done any of this, by the way. I've never written about one opera <laughs> since I've had this job. But it allows me, or sort of charges me, with thinking beyond the beat that I don't have. Right. So, I mean, I guess if I were, I mean, I I spent most of my career as a film critic. And a lot of the times, you know, you're writing four or five reviews a week. You know, I mean, three or three or four of those five movies might have might get you thinking in a way that's somewhat bigger than the the art of figuring out what works or what doesn't work about a movie. Because in some cases, what doesn't work is that it's tasteless in a way that offends you. It doesn't quite know what its subject matter is in a way that convinces you that that the movie works. And then there are times when you can't get all those thoughts into a, a review. So they you you then are required to pull back at newspapers. This day is usually on Sunday where you write this sort of story um, or for the Sunday paper. People want big takes on Sunday. Be, apparently. I mean, I have to say, like, as a person who was trained to read the newspaper, like that is the day I 
mentally come to expect a piece like that. Do, do you find that when you go to see a movie, how many movies do you say you go see a week now? Um, fewer than I used to. So now I'm probably down to maybe four or five. Oh, okay. Four so or five. That's nothing. Yeah. Three, four, four or five. Something oh, like everyone that. sees four or five movies a week. I mean, yeah. That's, yeah. yeah. On a Tuesday afternoon, uh, you can find me at a movie theater. But do you find that you're, you watch individual movies differently than when you were a critic reviewing, knowing that, you know, I have to bang out a thousand words on movie X? No. I mean, well, the thing that tethers me to film criticism in the way that I previously practiced it was the note is the note taking process. I still take notes as though I'm going to review the movie. I still take notes. I, I take notes watching a television show the same way that I would as I would where I just sit down and write, you know, a 900 standalone, 900 word standalone review of, I don't know, American uh American, whatever, pick, pick, put it, take American and put it in front of something that is (laughs) that. I mean, that approach has not changed too much. So uh, can I ask what year you were born? 1975. Okay, so 1975. And when would you say that you started kind of voraciously consuming pop culture and just culture generally? Voraciously? Well, uh, maybe not voraciously, but. Well, mm, I think. Probably when my parents got divorced and my father got cable. So that would have been like 81, 82, so maybe six. And MTV was my channel. I watched a lot of MTV and a lot of HBO um, because my dad was thought he was fancy. My parents getting divorced and my dad showing me like James Bond and Bruce Lee movies. It was the same thing yeah, for me. I mean, yeah, that's how. And so I, but my father didn't actually do a lot of like direct education. My mother was a direct educator. She would, she would put on these movies on American movie classics when we got cable after my parents got divorced, which took like four or five years. Um, and we would watch movies together. And that was the point at which once I could be left alone to like read books and watch TV and I understood what I was reading. Often as an adult, I go back and read these things and I'm like, I read, I read the Lita when I was 11 years old. I did totally different book. When, yeah. You might not have gotten all the, all the subtleties. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think I started voraciously consuming culture when I was like maybe six or seven comic books, books, movies. When you go back to the stuff, let's leave Lolita aside for a minute. When you go back to the stuff that you loved when you were a kid mm-hmm. uh, and you look at it now as an older person and mm-hmm. also as a critic, um, I mean, for me at least, it's impossible to be objective. And I find that there's some things that I know are silly, but I still love mm. because I sort of engage with them at that age. Is that yeah. the same thing for you? Do you feel that it's shaped some aspect of your taste? And Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, not only my taste, but like how I perceive the world, who who I wanted to be friends with. You know, I mean, if you see Goonies, Goonies was a movie that I was that came out when I was a kid. I think it came out in 1985. Yeah, 85, I think. Um, so I would have been nine years old when it came out. And I remember seeing that movie. And I, I think I saw it maybe like three times in theaters. And I wanted to be friends with those kids. Now, I didn't have any white kids in my neighborhood. I mean, there were some white kids at my school, not Goonies white kids, though. I'm from Philadelphia, and, you know, we just don't make that kind of white person in Philadelphia. Where do where where are those types of white people made? California, I okay. guess. Yeah. I don't know. Colorado, yeah. Arizona. I don't know. Just like that. Further west. Right. They're yeah. just that was that seemed very foreign to me. Um, there are some kids in New Jersey who might have 
like, you know, satisfied <laughs> that that personality type. But basically, I just wanted to have an adventure with some people and I didn't have any people to have those kinds of adventures with. But it definitely informed it kept me on the lookout for some Goonies buddies, basically. And, you know, watching Goonies now, I mean, it's got a lot of other problems that you can see. But as a as a nine year old, you certainly aren't paying any attention to at all. I guess the question I was hoping to bring full circle was if you were a critic at large for The New York Times in 1985, I, I don't even assume they had that role, but maybe they did. Oh, or did they? OK. <sighs> nah, I don't. I got to think about that. I think Margot Jefferson might have been the first person to really, really do that job in that way. Um, but anyway, d- d- let's assume. Yeah. How do you think the job would be different or how do you think you would conceive of it differently if you were you, Wesley Morris, at age 40? <laughs> 42, yeah. 42 in 1985. How do you think you'd conceive of that job differently? I don't know. There's a lot of crazy fucked up things happened in the 80s. That's true. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, in in the movie, if you go back and look at those times, I mean, I I don't know. How would I, how would I review? Are we talking just about Goonies now? Yeah. Yeah. That's hopefully what the podcast will be Um, about. Well, I, I guess what I meant also just, not just in terms of the time being different, 85 versus 2018, but just... It feels like being a critic at large now, mm-hmm. There, there's just so much to engage with. I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I, I think in 1985, what would I have had? I would have had the Goonies, like the Price is Right, a bunch of Gilligan's Island, re, Gilligan's Island reruns, a president like the Reagan administration. I wouldn't have had very much, right? Right. And so I think, well, I mean, I would have had a lot, but I wouldn't have had the overwhelm that we have now. So a critic at large in 85 is probably connecting Goonies. You're probably talking about like the Amblin Entertainment, you know, juggernaut and and what, what how Amblin-esque things are going to probably turn out to be. Right. Um. You. I mean, in 85, I mean, race wasn't a th- I mean, I, I would like to think that I would have written about race, um, but it wasn't something that was really written about with a lot of sophistication in, you know, America's newspapers. Uh with with great frequency, I should say, and there were way more newspapers back then. Obviously, I don't, I want it would be a real luxury to go back to 1985 yeah. and and be critic at large of the New York Times, being the person I am in 2018. That would be that would be wonderful. There's a, Robert Zemeckis. If you were listening to this show, I would love some kind of Back to the Future situation. 1985 um, as well, yeah. Send me back to send me back to 85 as me, but in my in my nine year old body. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I read an old interview with you where you talked about what Woody Allen meant to you. Uh, oh, boy. Well, no, I... Uh, I when was this? Uh, this was about four years ago, I think. Okay. And you were talking about the experience of watching Manhattan, which mm-hmm. um, I think... Oh, that's another good example of something that... Well, I was curious because you said- What did I say? You said uh, that when you watch Manhattan, you're kind of awed at the filmmaking. Oh, sure. And um, I was just I was just wondering, you know, if you've gone what back- What was the context? 
for that. I think just talking about, you know, what mattered to you when you were younger. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. And I was just wondering if you'd gone back and watched it and just more broadly how if, – if Woody Allen is someone that you've kind of had to wrestle with how to think about in – or maybe there are other people in your own personal hmm. kind of um, world of artists who mean something to you or whose work means something to you. I have to say I've been very lucky so far. I haven't had to reinvestigate or reinterrogate my relationships with too many people. There are probably people that I that I that I am refusing to do that with where like the the case isn't closed yet or or something like Michael Jackson is somebody I really think a lot about whether or not like what are my feelings about I mean I know what my feelings are about Michael Jackson but like how how much more should I complicate them? Because I feel like they're pretty complicated as it is. Woody Allen is somebody who I think I always appreciated with a degree of bewilderment at the very least, right? Um, because I I came, I mean, came of age, I was 12, 13, I was well, no, this would have been 80. This would have been 91, 92. I would have been like 15, 16, yeah. 17 yeah, 16. when the Soon Yi Mia fiasco broke. And Husbands and Wives came out at it around that time. Um, so I had it. There was a there was a I was raised during an era in which the art and the artist were morally conjoined. It was impossible to watch Husbands and Wives when it came out because it came out like not too long after we knew something was going on in that family. And you were you were sort of tasked with watching it under those circumstances. Um, and so I got really trained to sort of start to look at Woody Allen through a particular lens. And I I don't know. I think I really am not settled on the question of like, like the question when I was growing up was not whether he should continue to work, but what do you do with the work that he continues to make? Now the question is now the, the, the sort of the moral line is that you, that he, sh that no one, that some, none of these people who transgress our sort of moral values should be allowed to cross is, is, is the question of work. Like, should they continue to do their job? And Woody Allen, I feel is somebody who is just beginning to enter that phase of his, the reckoning in a way it sort of makes sense to say we're gonna no matter what we'll recognize chinatown as a great movie but we're also not gonna finance roman polanski movies or give him money by going to the theater and buying a ticket for something he made mm -hmm. that in a way makes more sense to me than to say well he should keep working and we're just going to judge all of his movies through the lens of what his personal behavior is yeah you know, that's I mean, it's of course, that's that's exactly the right way to think about it. I think that the lines, though, have moved and the lines, I think, are they might be generational. How old are you? Uh, Thirty five. OK, so generationally, I mean, you know, we're not I'm not that much older than you, but I think that when it comes to th like critical the formation of a kind of critical thinking, I think the criticism that I inherited was much more hands off and in no way activist oriented um, in the way that it currently is. And, you know, I would consider myself part of, I'm, I'm much more comfortable being on this end of things than on 
the let the artist continue to work and we take the work and figure out what to do with it. Um, but that was the, <laughs> those were the times we had. But, you know, I was a teenager when I was figuring that stuff out. And when I got to college, that was the point at which, you know, you'd encounter professors who had a very uncomplicated reverence to people like reverence for people like Woody Allen. And you didn't quite know how to challenge that sort of thing, but you were beginning to develop um, instruments by which you could could challenge these ideas. And, you know, I don't think I didn't learn anything about film criticism when I was in college. It's one of my complaints about the program I was in. I went to Yale. They have a fine film program, but it was more geared toward production and theory and not at all toward criticism. So I learned a lot about how to think both culturally about culture, particularly movies and literature from the standpoint of, of, of political identity and, and moral and, and, and racial and gender and sexual orientation oriented representation. And all of that, a lot of that sort of thinking applies in, in a lot of ways to what is going on today with our, our willingness finally to reckon with all of the shitty behavior that, mostly has been perpetuated by men. Where do you think you learned more about film criticism then? Reading. I mean, reading. I, I, I don't want to discount my, my academic training or my college education is probably the better way to put it. Because I learned a lot about how to think from college, but I didn't know anything about a history of film criticism in college. Um, the film criticism came mostly from reading other critics and having other critics introduce me to the critics they liked having other people tell me about Otis Ferguson and Andrew Saris and Molly Haskell and Judith Christ, who is one of those people who she's, I mean, she's due for a reconsideration of, of her excellence, if not her taste. Um, she had a very keen eye and Pauline Kael, obviously, if I didn't say Pauline Kael, there are a lot of people, a lot of really good critics who thought long and deeply about what the movies were doing. And in, it was in no way theoretical, or in most cases, it was in no way theoretical. Roger Ebert is someone else who both I was given, um, but I grew up with as well um, as a television watcher, but also who gave me other people to think about um, as being great critics. You use the phrase kind of activist criticism mm -hmm. or activist critic when you were, do you, is that a way you would describe yourself? No, I wouldn't. You know, it's funny, but I, I want to see fairness and in, in a kind of justice take place in popular culture. I know that there is a long history of, of the opposite happening. There's a long history of injustice and a long history of, of, the questionable, racist, you know, sexist depictions of various people, uh, uses of people that would be that I would deem exploitative. I don't sit down to write something and I do not practice criticism with the intention of changing things. My my goal as a critic is to I mean, and this is sort of an old model of of, of using it. Um, but I think it can it can lead to some interesting places um, beyond the work in question. And that's mostly to connect the work to what's happening in the world. And in making that connection, there's a charge that happens. 
Um, now you can call whatever that charge is in, in connecting like art and and you know work of mass works of mass culture to social movements and politics and whatever is happening in various parts of the world and country, um, a kind of activism. I wouldn't object to that, but I would not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that that is that activism is my primary goal or my primary sort of um, objective as a critic. I think about kind of our current moment there, there'd be at least two ways of thinking about being a critic. One is there's all this crazy stuff going on in the world and what is, you know, the responsibility of the critic to address it or to not address it. But, but more specifically also, and you can comment on that, but also more specifically, I mean, the Oprah for president boomlet, (laughs) which I know you discussed a little on your podcast, but one of the things that that also kind of makes you think is it's not just that we're living in crazy times, but it's that these worlds of entertainment and politics are so enmeshed now. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And the idea of separating them seems like that's just not the world we live in. I mean, the president had an NBC show. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, and so does that at all change the way you think about culture or what culture is in 2018? It doesn't change what I think culture is. I do think culture has changed around where we are in ways that I think we keep looking for like what we think Trump entertainment is supposed to be. But, you know, the Trump entertainment, for instance, uh, was already in a weird way there. Right. I think that there had always been a kind of politics in the in the in the TV and movies and music and a lot of the music we've been getting in the last 10 years and it all had sort of been headed toward you know this particular waterfall or cliff or whatever and you know it's funny because you know you asked me i mean i brought up goonies you didn't ask me to bring up goonies but before the show i actually suggested that you bring up goonies (laughs) you can tell people um but there is a longing for a time when things just seemed simpler even though things weren't simple they just had fewer eyes on them and there was no black Twitter, right? So I do think that, you know, it's all, it's all merged. And I think that my criticism, and I've thought about, I've thought about this. Um, I do think a lot about what I write about and it's really hard. It's increasingly hard to have, to, to, to practice criticism in a vacuum that does not, in any way acknowledge the the wider world and the wider state of the country. I tried to do that a couple of weeks ago and I'd, I was sort of astonished by how I kept being drawn back in to what are you referring to specifically? Uh, I wrote a, I tried to write a very simple throwaway story about John Fogarty being annoyed at this Taraji P. Henson movie or not at, but not at her, but for at Sony for using his song and, um, for using proud Mary. And I mean, I guess there's a scenario in which I could have written that story in 400 words and called it a day. But I think the reason it wound up being, you know, 11 or 1200 words was that I was actively resisting the pull to, to go into, or to like make it a larger story than it was. I was surprised by how, I didn't want to go there and really didn't I didn't have to because it doesn't it didn't warrant the 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 opprobrium 
or or that sort of connection. But the idea that a white man, an older, an old white man would be take trying to take a movie starring a black woman to task for something, no matter what it was, was something that like potentially could incite a lot of outrage. And I just wanted to write something that acknowledged that old white man John Fogarty was right. And the studio did butcher his song and the movie only exists or the only, you know, it's a movie you watch and you realize, oh, they only made this to just to have this one action sequence that uses Proud Mary. And so that, yeah, I mean, it's it's so pervasive now that, that now I'm writing <laughs> I'm writing preemptive. I'm kind of I'm writing a kind of preemptive criticism to. To, to stanch outrage before it starts. <laughs> well, th- th- that leads to my obvious question, I guess, which is, do you think social media has changed you as a critic at all? Um, or in, even, you know, unconsciously in certain ways. I mean, it's changed all of us, I assume. Yeah. All journalists sh- who sure. engage in it in yep. some ways, it yep. certainly has. I'm a nervous wreck because I spend too much time on Twitter. But I I, I mean, I'm, is there anything specifically that comes to mind? Or I've cut my Twitter diet in half. How much time do you think you spend? I have no comment. Is it, a, I mean, like, I mean, that may be hours, but it's a fair. I mean, it, you know, look, Twitter is great for reading articles because you follow yes. smart people and they tweet I out great articles. Yeah, definitely, and, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yes. And so that aspect of it is great. And I read more great stuff than I did 10 years ago from mm-hmm. more variety of sources. For sure. But there's also the thing where like some crazy news days happening and you're anxious and you're just scrolling to see what's next. <laughs> and that's <laughs> one. It makes you think everything is permanent crisis, which, yes, in a way, everything is permanent crisis. But it also, I think, gives you a warped sense of the speed at which things are moving. And yeah. it just doesn't do good things for your psyche. So that's what I would say personally, but I'm interested in what, if you, what your experience is. I have a similar feeling about it that you do. I, I really do. I love, there is an art to speaking that language though. I mean, obviously, you know, the man, the man elected to the highest office in the nation is, is decent at it. I think there are just some really good Twitter people out there and I love I love them. I love seeing them. I love I love getting, you know, I don't like the expanded format, the the character format. Yeah. Um I accept it uh because you have no choice. I try to stay off it mostly because I don't want that kind of toxicity um with me all the time, but I do notice that since I have stopped using it with the frequency that I have as a, as a like actual tweeter, as opposed to someone who just gets a lot of great information from Twitter. I don't know. I feel like there's a muscle that I got good at using that I'm now no longer using. And every time I go back and start using it, uh, Twitter, I mean, I spend a lot of time sitting there thinking about, okay, should I, is this, should I, should I tweet this? Is this, is this tweetable? Is this all right? I, I there's a part of me that would like to get back to to daily Twitter use as an actual tweeter. But mostly I think that I just made a choice. Like I'm working on a book and I I am so desperate to finish it. And any any second, you know, you become really stingy with your time when you when you're like not nah, I'm not struggling to finish it, but when you're just eager to finish something I feel like I'm very stingy with my time and I feel like there's a lot of wormholes you can fall down spending 45 minutes composing a single tweet. Before we go, uh, I have to talk to you about three billboards uh, <laughs> outside Ebbing, Missouri. Is that the full title? Do yeah. you do you have to? 
Uh, well, yeah, no, I think actually there, there's a moral, resp- moral, moral responsibility to discuss it since uh, it's such an abomination. You wrote a piece for three about for the New York Times about three billboards about mm-hmm. some of your flaws with it. I uh, saw the film a couple weeks ago. I've been outraged basically constantly since that time that people have liked it. I know it's a very controversial opinion since many people do like it. I believe it's, uh, according to Las Vegas, the front runner for Best Picture. So Still? Oh, well, maybe that's changed. I mean, I don't know. I, I just you feel like... your piece tilted? No, uh... <laughs> <laughs> no I just, uh, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like Martin, Mc... this is like, you know, for your Oscar listeners out there. Yeah, but... for people who are interested in three billboards. You know. I just feel like, I think Martin McDonough's not getting a Best Director nomination is a chink in the armor. And I think that since the voting is taking place, the voting, I don't know when the polls close for the voting, but it's op- they'll be open for a little bit. Right. And I think that I think that I think there's a degree of skepticism about this movie. And I think whenever you ask, if, have you talked to three billboards fans? Oh, yeah. My my I have I, they they're in my family there. They're, yeah. You know, it tends to happen. It's it's yeah. Makes but what do they and... what do they say? Because my my number one, the thing, the only thing anybody ever has to say to me about in general, not nah, pretty much absolutely about what they like about this movie. Yeah. She's great. And yeah. so Sam Rockwell, that's all anybody has. I'm not, I, I, I dispute both those things too, Yeah, but I'm, those things don't, uh, those things don't bother me. I think, you know, but so, well, so briefly, why don't you just, for people who haven't read your article, which people should go read, okay. why did you dislike the movie and, and why don't you think those things are bothering other people? I mean, like, let's say there were a political figure in America I really, really disliked. <laughs> and I just thought it's so obvious that this guy is bad news. And why can't the entire country see it? It's just so clear. He's conning us. And yet people don't see it. And I, I feel that a little bit about this movie. And I'm so I'm interested in why everyone doesn't think the way I do, I guess. OK, so, you know, you sort of have brought this conversation to to a to a Close. I thought we'd end way. on a high note. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's more like the 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 question that you were asking me about the ways in which politics and entertainment have have conjoined, have been conjoined to each other. I mean, perhaps inextricably, perhaps forever, is brought to bear in not the movie itself, but in the response to the movie. Right. I was hoping the reason I wrote this piece and was because I did not like the movie. I was getting the sense that other people were liking it. And I will I will say that I saw this movie in August. It opened, I believe, at the end of October or the beginning of November of last year. I just left the theater and thought, oh, well, sorry about that. Good luck, you guys. But then and then, it, you know, it didn't I didn't think about it for three months. And then all of a sudden. It does pretty well. The box office and the reviews aren't terrible. I think it's the premiere at, at the Toronto International Film Festival that that surprised me a little bit. The response to it to it there, but you know, I go to film festivals. I know what they're like. Even at a low altitude place like Toronto, there's a kind of high altitude situation that you just you tend to think things are worse or better than they are. Because the energy is 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 getting to you, but then like like non festival people were liking this movie, and then like average American you know non professional move civilian moviegoers were enjoying it too. So I went back and I watched it again, and I watched people like really get off on like the monologues that the Francis McDormand character has, 
And I just thought, like, it is tapping into something, but it's so bogus. And my my principal problem with the movie is that I don't believe it. I don't believe, and I don't mean I don't, I can't accept that, like, there's a lyricism at play or, be that as it may, I do not believe the world as presented to me by Martin McDonough, the writer and director of this movie. I don't believe what he sees about not only about America, but even about his version of America, um, because he's an Irishman who, unlike other people who've tried to depict America, like Lars von Trier, has actually been to the United States. But has he been to Missouri? <laughs> didn't, didn't seem like it. Certainly did not seem like it. I just feel like, you know, it's... no, I'm feeling a little jingoistic and xenophobic. Uh, I mean, no, it's like obviously people should be able to do representations of whatever they want. That's not but, my issue. Yeah, no, mine either. But it did it did have that feeling. Uh, the movie has this uh, rant about the Catholic Church that kind of comes out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. And has nothing to do with anything. And you sort of go like, oh, an Irish playwright wrote this. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, no, I think, you know, some people, the one defense of it that I've heard from people is that, you know, it's kind of, um, it's supposed to be kind of, ridiculous or extreme it's not supposed to be sort of stark realism uh Mm -hmm. but i and i've heard people compare it to you know quentin tarantino films the way people talk what i would say about that is that you know those quentin tarantino's world and jackie brown or pulp fiction or reservoir dogs may not be realistic but it's sort of the characters make sense within that world they it's true to itself well whereas this movie none of the characters seem even true to themselves right i mean (laughs) tarantino doesn't make movies about america Tarantino makes movies about American movies and in those American movies is a version of America. And and Tarantino is at times paying tribute to that world and at other times interrogating it. And that's not what's happening in three billboards. There's no there's no the, the, the text that he is that he's dealing with is on its face the United States. Right. And it's extremism frankly is not extreme enough you know there's a kind of there's a cuteness at the center of this movie there's a there's a need to be liked and understood at the center of this movie and i i would the 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 real the fearless version of this movie nobody would see like you know the truest version of this movie is you know she really does go on a killing spree to avenge the 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 unsolved death of her daughter unsolved murder of her daughter she kills the sheriff. She she kills everybody to get answers. I think the 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 actual Charles Bronson version of this movie like it would never get financed. So I feel like the thing that I don't believe about it is that I don't even think it has the courage of its own convictions. I don't care that it's not like the America that I live in. I don't I don't live in Missouri. Like if you want to tell me a story about something happening in Missouri, fine. I, I don't I, I don't contest that. But I don't think this movie is about any of that stuff, right? It's it's all it's all like it's set in the like smack dab center middle of the country. The town is called Ebbing, Missouri. I, I it's just, in the title. The the name of the town is in the title right, of the movie. Right. So for people who say, Well, it's not supposed to be, it's like come no, on. No, I mean yeah. you know, it's also they didn't call it flowing Missouri. Do you know what I mean? I just feel like there's there's a real kind of both there's a heavy hand of, you know writing this cursive and i just i just didn't i i just i i did not i could not fall for it all right well 
if it were up to me, we would talk about this for another half hour. I but, could talk about it forever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Wesley Morris is a critic at large for The New York Times and the host of the podcast Still Processing. Wesley, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks today. for having me. This was fun. This was great. Take care. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Max Jacobs with help today from Daniel Schrader. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at ask at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Are you looking for more great Slate shows? Check out The Gist. The Gist is a daily news and opinion podcast from Slate. Every weekday afternoon, host Mike Pesca, my friend, sorts through the torrents of information in the news cycle. He selects a few stories that cry out for a closer look because of an odd fact, an untested argument, or a thesis to explore. Think of The Gist as a curated op-ed page with more jokes. Look for it every weekday evening. That's The Gist with Mike Pesca.